How's everybody this morning? Hey, it's good to be here. Uh, I say this all the time, but uh, I want to get to know you guys. So if you don't know me, my name is Brandon, uh, one of the pastors here, uh, and I'm excited to, to meet your acquaintance. So uh, come find me after the service. I'll be in the lobby. Uh, let's set, a, set up a time to get together, have coffee, have some lunch, and uh, you can come to my house. It'll be great. Well, if you have your Bibles this morning, let's turn to the book of Exodus, chapter 14. If you don't know where Exodus is, the second book of the Bible, so go all the way to the left. One book past Genesis, there it is. Now, last week we began a journey looking at Israel as they wander through the wilderness. Now, it's important for us to remember that although many of these stories are familiar, and this this story today is maybe one of the most familiar in the book of Exodus. It's important to remember that these stories aren't in God's word to tell us about biblical history. They're included in scripture for our instruction. Right? They're here to tell us God's lessons for us. Now, last week, Paul told us, uh, we, we read this actually during our communion time. He, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 that this entire Exodus experience happened and was recorded for our instruction. Now, these Exodus journeys teach us how to handle difficult seasons in our lives. But they also point us to Jesus and who he is and what he came to do. Again, every, everything in the Old Testament, if you're reading it and you're not seeing Jesus, you're missing it. We'll come back to that another day, though. Now, this is why we want to look at these passages during this Easter season, right? The season leading up to Easter, this incredible celebration where we remember the death, burial, and resurrection of our Lord. But in this season, it's, it's important to remind ourselves that our God is a God who is faithful, even when we wander and stray. He's a God who keeps his promises even when we go back on our word. Last week we were reminded of the importance of remembering. Remembering God's steadfast love, his kindness, his goodness, even when the path and the road in front of us seems dark and dismal. Even when we failed in sin. We were reminded of how God takes even our weaknesses, our incredible failures, and he can turn them into a testimony that we can share with the coming generations of God's great faithfulness and love. So if you're with me, turn to Exodus chapter 14, and uh, let me ask us to stand together, and let's read God's word with one voice. We're going to read Exodus 14, verses 10 through 14. It'll be up on the screen together. Let's say this. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us? In bringing us out of Egypt. Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. 
For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. It's stuck. Hey, the Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you for your word, even when it gets stuck on the screen. Lord, we thank you that we as your people can gather as one body to glorify and worship your holy name. So instruct us this morning, we pray. Teach us by your Holy Spirit the truth of what your word says, that we might change it, be changed, and glorify your name because of it. We love you and we thank you for this incredible privilege of being your children. And all God's people said, amen. You may be seated, church. Thank you. All right, so Israel has come to a place where everything around them is falling apart. Right, they're at a low point in their history. And you, you think, oh, they were slaves in Egypt. But they got out of Egypt and now it's going poorly again. And, and it's like all the pieces of God's plan for their lives are falling apart. And they're exposed to this unthinkable threat. Have you ever been there before? Where, where you think you know God's plan for your life and you're moving towards this direction and everything seems to be going great and then it just falls apart all around you? Have you ever experienced those strings of setbacks or disappointments or discouragements that made you wonder whether God even cared about you at all? I don't know about you, but several, for several years, I tried to go full-time on the mission field. And again and again, I would apply with different organizations, and there was always some kind of hang-up. You know, I had school debt. Actually, they wanted me to go get a, a degree. They required it, but then they wanted you to have no school debt. So I, I went to school, and then I found out after, no debt. So, you know, this is problematic. It was a young man, you know, trying to make his way. And I went another time, and it just wasn't a good fit, and I went another time, and, and I just remember asking the Lord at one point, like, I feel like I'm banging my head against the wall with this. I thought this was what you called me to do. And years later, I figured it's the same calling. It's just not exactly what I thought it was going to look like. And maybe you set, found yourself in one of those similar situations where, where you felt like you're moving forward in God's calling in your life. And you've just hit this brick wall. And maybe because of that, you've been growing in, in distrust and, and bitterness. And maybe that root of cynicism has grown up in your heart a little bit. So if you're there, or if you've been there, then this passage is for you. Because it's exactly where the Israelites are in this moment. Now look at verses 1 through 4 because Yahweh is going to set the course of Israel's journey. It says, then the Lord said to Moses, tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front 
of Pihahiras. I don't know if that's right, but that's what I'm going to say. Between Migdol and the sea, in front of Baal Zephon, you shall encamp facing it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, they are wandering in the land, and the wilderness has shut them in. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. Now, God has chosen an escape route for Israel. If you, if you don't know the background of this story, Israel has left Egypt. They've left slavery, and they're wandering in the wilderness. And God gives them this, this path to take. And he chooses them, he chooses a path with Israel's weaknesses and needs in mind. I'm going to put this map up on the screen here. Now, just to be clear... If you can't see this, move closer. <laughs> there are several different schools of thought on the route that the Israelites took as they wandered in the wilderness. We don't actually know. But I found this one to be interesting because it puts Mount Sinai on the Arabian side. And it puts them crossing kind of in the middle there of the Red Sea uh, where many times you'll see kind of them at the bottom crossing. Who knows? I don't actually know. I thought this map was interesting. I'm going to put it up. So all that to say, they fled Egypt. They're wandering in the wilderness. And God gives them this command to turn back the other way. To turn back from the way that they were going and camp by the seaside. Now, if you were fleeing an enemy... The last thing you'd want to do is put water at your back. Because they're going to come at you, and where can you go? Nowhere. This puts the Israelites in an extremely vulnerable position with no way to escape the Egyptian army. This is exactly what the Lord is telling Moses to do. He's telling Moses to put the people in a vulnerable position. Verse 3, God tells Moses what his plan is. He wants Pharaoh to think that the Israelites are wandering aimlessly through the desert. They have no idea where they're going. To believe that they're trapped. God, this, God does this to entice Pharaoh to pursue Israel. And to harden his heart. It says that again. He, he's, he's been hardening Pharaoh's heart for a long time now. Now, although this might seem like the main point of the story, verse 4 tells us that Yahweh had an incredibly different purpose in doing all of this. It says, God does this not only for the deliverance of Israel, but for the display of his glory. God is putting his people in a vulnerable position for the display of his glory. You need to wrestle with that thought a little bit, church. Because God plans to use Pharaoh and his army as instruments for his glory. So that the Egyptians will know that he is the Lord. This is the purpose of the wilderness wanderings. So that the people will know that he is God. 
Now, if you remember back in Exodus chapter 5, Moses comes to Pharaoh and there's that famous exchange, right? Let my people go. But in Exodus 5, 2, Pharaoh, after Moses asked Pharaoh to let the people go, do you remember his response? He says, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord. Moreover, I will not let Israel go. So it's kind of God's funny response. Oh, you don't know who I am? I'm going to show you. I'm going to show you real clearly. God is going to show Pharaoh exactly who he is. And not just Pharaoh, but the Egyptian army, the Egyptian people. They're going to know who I am as well. And the people of Israel, they are going to receive God's mercy. We know, the, we know the story, hopefully. But they're caught up in a much larger plan than simply their own freedom. So if someone asks you what the Exodus story is really all about, you should not tell them it's about Israel crossing the Red Sea. You should not tell them it's about Israel's deliverance. It's not. It is about God's glory being revealed to the world. On a side note, if somebody asks you about your story and you're encouraged to give your testimony, that testimony should be all about God's glory revealed to you. Amen? Don't make it about you. You're missing it. It's about God's glory revealed to you. Now, side note, aside. Now, in the midst of all of this, I want you to think about being an Israelite in this moment. Because they have no idea what's actually going on. They're not in on this conversation with, that God has with Moses. All that they can see is their world around them falling apart. They were slaves. They escaped. They think freedom is near. Oh, no, we live in the desert now. That's my nightmare, by the way. And you desert dwellers, no. We live on a mountain for a reason. It's just better. Whew. But they're, they're, they're living in this wasteland, and the Egyptian army is now coming after them. And we have this privilege of looking back at history and saying, oh, you know, we would have done it so much different. But, but we must be careful not to be too hard on Israel, Right? Because it's often difficult for us to see God's plan unfolding when we're in the midst of those wilderness moments. Right? When the world feels like it's caving in all around you, you get that bad news and it just feels heavy. It's hard to say, oh, yeah, Lord, this is so, you're going to work this all out. It's going to be great. No, often your first response is, what are you doing? How dare you? Give me a break. That's typically our first response, right? It's often difficult to see God's plan when we're in the midst of the wilderness. But let's look at verses 5 through 9. I want to unpack the story a little bit more. It says, when the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people. And they said, what is this that we've done? That we have let Israel go from serving us. So he made ready his chariot and took his army with him. 
and took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army, and they overtook them and camped at the sea by Pi-Harahaf, I'm going to stick with that, in front of Baal-Zephon. Now, verse 5 is like the cut scene, right, in the movie, where we're, we're, we're with Israel, camping by the sea, and it's a cut scene now to the court of the Egyptian rulers. And there's this discussion going on between Pharaoh and his officers. And it's like they finally realize, wait a minute, we lost our workforce. We just sent 600,000 able-bodied slaves out of our nation. What are we going to do? We're going to hire people to do this work? What were we thinking? And even though Pharaoh had relented after all the plagues and all that stuff and let Israel leave, he has this change of heart. And again, you might be tempted to think, oh, it's the circumstances. He finally came, you know, he weighed out his options and he came to the conclusion that he shouldn't have done it, so he's going to change his mind and go after Israel now. No. This is God's plan unfolding. God hardened Pharaoh's heart so that he would then pursue the Israelites into the wilderness. Now, again, it's, it's one of those moments where we, we think, what was Pharaoh thinking, right? Now, think back to what Pharaoh just went through, what the nation of Egypt just went through, right? Moses goes to Pharaoh, says, let my people go, and then what happens? Plagues. So horrific that, that I don't know how anybody survives it. In fact, the firstborn sons don't make it. And we're like, how, when is Pharaoh going to learn the lesson not to mess with the God of Israel? This is what the hardening of his heart does. It causes him to not be able to see reality, but to actually move in a way that God intends him to. So he changes his mind, and he pursues Israel into the wilderness. And it says he, in verses 6 and 7 that he mobilizes his armies against the Israelites. Now, to be clear, he's not sending just a few soldiers out after these masses of people. Now, the Israelites were unarmed. They, they were slaves. So they're, they're literally leaving the land of Egypt with nothing, just whatever they could carry. No weapons, for sure. And Pharaoh is sending the bulk, maybe even the entirety of his army, which at the time was the most powerful army on earth. And he's sending them after these women and children and elderly folks and men who have no idea even how to handle a bow and arrow. And again, our temptation is to look at this and see, oh, this is Pharaoh's good idea to send every soldier he has after the, after the Israelites. But no, this is God's plan. This is God's plan. Because he is sovereignly in control of all of these events. And so Pharaoh sends his armies after the people of Israel, and this is exactly what Yahweh wants him to do. Now let's look a little bit further at verses 10 through 12. 
It says, when Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them and they feared greatly. That was probably a fair response. It says, the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. Well, the people of Israel, they're in the camp. They have, uh, you know, nice uh, tents by the seashore. And they're camping out and they see the Egyptian army making their way towards them. And they completely fall apart. And maybe rightfully so. But there's this total change of attitude, right? They've been delivered from Egypt and they leave the land, you know, singing and, and praising the Lord. And now the Egyptian army is upon them and what do they do? Well, in good fashion, they blame Moses. They blame their leader. This is, you know, typically what we do. But when they left Egypt, they had, they had given their hope and their trust to God. They said, oh, God is the one who's delivered us. But when the difficulty comes in their lives, it's like they throw up their hands in despair. They lose faith and they start blaming everyone around them for their problems. Does that sound familiar? None of us have ever responded that way, right, to adversity, you know? Now, sadly, this isn't the first time Israel's responded this way and it's surely not going to be their last. If it was, it would be a really short sermon series. So they grumble against Moses and they ask him these three real biting questions. Right? The first question's there in verse 11, and it's so sarcastic, it's like a snarky teenager making the comment. No, no offense to all the teens in the room. I, I love you all. Right. You know, he's sarcastic. This is part of the deal. Look what they look at the Look what they asked Moses. Have you brought us into the wilderness because there weren't enough graves in Egypt? Now, this might actually be kind of funny if the situation was different, right? Uh, and, and, a, and another quick side note. Have you ever thought about what the Israelites were doing in Egypt? They were building pyramids. The pyramids were graves. They were literally building tombs. And they asked Moses, have you brought us into the wilderness because there weren't enough graves in Egypt? You just feel their sarcasm is getting a little thick there. Now, the rest of their questions don't get any more gracious, right? They, they, they don't pull back any punches with Moses. Because they have so little faith in Yahweh at this moment that they've convinced themselves that God only brought them out of Egypt to let them die in the wilderness. How ridiculous. He's already promised to, to deliver them. And he's been delivering them again and again and again. And yet they get to this place where their back's against the wall and they look at God and they say, what on earth do you think you're doing? You must have just brought us out here so we could die. There weren't enough graves in Egypt. All we did was build graves and now you brought us and we're going to build graves here in the wilderness. Now God is going to answer their questions for the record but not in the way that the Israelites expect. Because his answer isn't that he brought them out of Egypt for their comfort or their ease or so that they could live their best life now. 
That is not why God brought them through the wilderness. He brought them into the wilderness to see his glory. To see the type of God that he really is. That they would learn to trust him completely. Can I tell you, brothers and sisters, it's the same for us. It's no different. God is saving us to show us his glory. So that that we would learn to trust him and see him for who he really is. He doesn't promise promise us that he's not going to take us into the wilderness, put our backs to the sea, and bring the Egyptian army in its full force upon us. But he does promise to redeem us. And in so doing, reveal to the world exactly the kind of God that he is. Church, this is the message of our salvation. This is the message of hope we need to be proclaiming to the world. That our God is a God who wants to show us his glory. So that we'd be able to praise him for who he is. And sometimes the way it, he, sometimes the way we need him to get us there isn't the most pleasant way. Right? Some of us are thick-headed like this guy. And, and the journey to get us to a place of trust is a difficult one. It's like that stubborn child you know some of you had or were, some of you were. But we get there eventually, and sometimes that road is difficult. But I, but I want you to, to understand something, that just because God takes you through trials and difficulties to show you who he is doesn't mean that he's some cold-hearted God toying with you. He knows what you need, and he knows how to get you there perfectly. And it's not like the story ends there, right? Because the Israelites cry out to Yahweh, and in this moment, they cry out in their despair. And Yahweh responds to their cries, and in a very incredible way. But before we... Before we digress too much, let's, let's look at verses 13 and 14 because I want us to wrestle with these couple of verses as we finish up. Look what Moses says. He says to the people, fear not, stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You only have to be silent. I think he said that because he wanted them to stop complaining. (laughs) But in the face of this apparent pending disaster, right? If you look at the situation, Israel should be destroyed. Wiped off the face of the earth in one fell swoop. But Moses tells the Israelites, you're going to see something profound. And even though they're more concerned with this army of Egyptians right in front of them, they're more concerned about what Pharaoh is up to than what Yahweh is up to, we should still, again, cut Israel a little bit of slack. Because they were slaves in Egypt for 430 years. 
The only thing that this generation has actually known is slavery. They had lost the ability to hope. They had lost the ability to handle difficult situations and look at those situations and say, God, I trust you anyways. God, I trust that you're going to deliver me. And church, can I, we're learning that lesson too. Because we were slaves to sin. We were in bondage to, the, to this world. And we need to learn the lesson that our God is saving us, delivering us from that bondage. Even when we don't like the path that he's taking us to get there. You see, I believe we all, when difficulties of life come creeping in and we feel that despair, depression, discouragement, we need to learn how to respond to our God appropriately. Because there's no greater testimony than the church of God responding to him appropriately in the midst of struggle. I love what Martin Lloyd-Jones writes. Listen to these words. He says, the main art in the matter of spiritual living is to know how to handle yourself. You have to take yourself in hand. You have to address yourself, preach to yourself, question yourself. You must say to your soul, why art thou cast down? What business have you to be disquieted? You must turn on yourself, upbraid yourself, condemn yourself, exhort yourself, and say to yourself, hope thou in God. Instead of muttering in this depressed, unhappy way. And then you must go on to remind yourself of God, who God is, what God is, and what God has done. And what God has pledged himself to do. Then having done that, end on this great note. Defy yourself and defy other people and defy the devil and the whole world. And say with this man, I shall yet praise him for the help of his countenance, who is also the health of my countenance and my God. Church, we need to learn to preach to ourselves the truth. When trials and temptations weigh down, when our sins, they are many, to preach to ourselves his mercy is more. His grace is more. His promises are more. Because he's a good and faithful God. Moses is telling the Israelites the same thing in this passage. He tells them, fear not, stand firm, and see what the Lord is going to do. He basically tells them, stand there and be quiet. And imagine you're an Israelite hearing this encouragement from your leader. Telling you, stand there and be quiet and wait and see what the Lord's going to do. He's you know, just do nothing. God's going to take care of it. Imagine you're an Israelite hearing that. You're going to respond and be like, come on, Moses. But Moses wants the people of God to understand that two things are going to come out of this. First, they're going to find out what a Savior really looks like. You see... They already experienced what a redeemer looks like when they were in Egypt. 
Because that redeemer had been shown to them as the purchased blood of the Passover lamb. They saw redemption firsthand. And they had been purchased out of Egypt by that redemption. Now they're going to see what a savior looks like. With their backs up against the wall and death on their doorstep. They're going to see a savior who does all the fighting for you. Who redeems us without our help. Uh, Did you know you offer nothing to God in the way of your salvation? You offer nothing. He's giving it to you for free. He does all the work. They're also going to learn about a God who is willing to fight on their behalf. To protect them. To deliver them. See, our, our God fights on our behalf, but perhaps it's not always in the way you might think. And can I tell you, if you want a perfect picture of a God who fights on your behalf, go no further than Jesus Christ hanging on that cross in Golgotha. And in that moment, vanquishing the forces of death and hell on your behalf. That is a God fighting for you. Hanging in shame on a tree. And if that is who your God is, church, who do we have to fear? There's no army in this world that, that should make us quake in our boots. This is a lesson we all need to learn, church. And my prayer for each person in this room is that God would encourage your heart to trust him in that way. That, that the discouragements and the failures in that time when you, you head up against the wall and your head's just bashing against it going, Lord, what are you doing? Is an opportunity for you to say, Lord, but I trust you. Because I know you're a God who saves. I know you're a God who redeems and delivers. And even though I can't see you in this wilderness moment, your promises are true. And you've promised to deliver us from the forces of sin and death and hell. Amen? Church, my hope is that that would be our heart's cry to this world. Because the world has a lot of ideals about how this life should look and what we should be all about. But the cry of the church is that our God is a God who saves. And as he saves us, he reveals to us his glory so that more would know him. And sometimes it's up to us to simply be still and watch for the salvation of the Lord. So let's pray and then we're going to move into a time of communion together. Because again, I can't think of a better time to come to the Lord's table than to remember the, the, the truth that our God is a God who's just constantly saving, constantly redeeming. But let me pray and ask the Lord to bless this time and then we'll move into this time of communion. Father God, we love you. And Lord, we, we confess we often don't understand your plans. When that diagnosis comes in, or that failure is on our doorstep, or that 
struggle just seems so persistent that we can't seem to push forward. Lord, but in the midst of the struggles of this world, Lord, we know that you are good. And you're making a way for us. Help our hearts believe that truth. That you're a God making a way for us. Not just for Israel and the wilderness, but for each heart in this room, for each person in this community, for every human on this earth, Lord, you are desiring to draw us unto yourself. Lord, give us hearts that aren't feeble, but proclaim that truth to this world so that we can receive the gift of your salvation and proclaim that you are a glorious God. We ask this all in Christ's precious name. Amen.